The universe is like a computer. There are lots of things in the universe, including us. All of those things have to operate together in a spirit of cooperation. They all contain unbelievable amounts of data that tells them how to operate. Or that couldn't happen. Our universe couldn't work, wouldn't exist. Someone had to design the universe's operating system. Without an operating system, your computer is a big piece of useless junk. God designed the operating system for the universe and everything in it. It wouldn't exist without him. I'm Paul, and this is CYKIAE. Jesus wasn't crucified on Good Friday. Excruciating is a word that comes from crucifixion. Why does Richard Dawkins, atheist hero extraordinaire, have his knickers in a twist for all of the wrong reasons again over a story from the Old Testament that's really all about Jesus that he doesn't understand anyway, as usual? Stick around to find out. Although Christian tradition has it that Christ was crucified on a Friday, it seems more likely that he was crucified on a Wednesday. The resurrection happened on the Sunday, with which everyone agrees. Jesus told his disciples that he'd be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Matthew 12.40. So to arrive at Jesus' resurrection as being on the Sunday, he had to be dead and buried sometime late on Wednesday to be in the earth for three days and nights, beginning with Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, rising from the dead on the Sunday. This detail about the chronology of Jesus' final week and his trip from Bethany, which shows this, but I won't go into it in this program, makes it pretty clear that Jesus wasn't crucified on the Friday. Another story that's central to the crucifixion that came over a thousand years before it is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham lived in about 1200 BC, about 1200 years before the birth of Jesus. Early on in his teachings, Jesus had this great exchange with the Pharisees where he stated that he was the Son of God. For those who say that Jesus never said he was the Son of God. It's in John 8.56-58. He tells the Pharisees about himself and Abraham, long dead by the time of this conversation. Jesus, the man, then being about 35 years old. He says to the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews, the Jewish leaders under him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. I am is the saying that he is God. He was before all time, and he will be after time ends and forever. 
Abraham's story about when he took his son Isaac into the countryside alone because God commanded him to offer his son as a sacrifice to God is one that sends Richard Dawkins, the poster boy of the atheist secular movement, into a complete tiz. The story shocks him, and he uses it to prove that God is a monster. The insane God of the Christians and the Jews, a complete psychopath as he shares his pathetic, that's Richard Dawkins' pathetic understanding of this story in his book, Outgrowing God. The one thing that Richard Dawkins continuously proves in his books is the quotation by G.K. Chesterton, who said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and not been tried. Dawkins could not have read this part of the Bible to have come up with the stupid story that he does, or he's only read it very superficially. Dawkins tells the shocking story of Abraham and Isaac in terms of a very young boy being taken up into the country, up a steep mountain by his elderly father, for the purpose of making a sacrifice of this young child to God. But what the poor child Isaac isn't told is that the sacrifice God demands is him. Dawkins imagines for us the terror, the absolute terror of this poor child, then being trussed up by his father and put on top of the sacrificial pile of timber for his ritualistic murder. Of course, all that might be true if Isaac had been a very young child. Dawkins dreams that up out of nothing, except that Isaac was probably about the same age as Jesus when he was crucified, about 32. Isaac was carrying on his back a huge pile of kindling and more substantial wood for the burnt offering that he was to be made to God. He had a half-brother, Ishmael. His mother, Sarah, who seemed to be barren, had consented to her husband, Abraham, having a son with one of his concubines, Hagar. About 13 years later, unexpectedly and miraculously, thanks to God, Sarah came to bear a son herself to Isaac. She and Abraham were both at a very elderly age. It was a miraculous conception, not the last that would appear in the Bible. Isaac was the first boy circumcised in accordance with the new Jewish practice that God instructed Abraham to make thereafter, and that is, at the age of eight days. God promised to make from Isaac's line, the line from the marriage of Abraham and Sarah, a great nation, the Jewish nation. Ishmael and his mother were sent away from Abraham and Sarah, and they became the Arab nation. But that happened many, many years before this incident with Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham was told in Genesis 22, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, And Abraham said, Behold, I am here. And God said, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. And this is the first time in the Bible that the word love is used. Uniquely, among religions of this world, love is at the heart of the Judeo-Christian religions. 
God continued, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham knows that God never lies and never breaks his promises. Abraham knows that if God requires him to kill his son Isaac on the altar, Isaac will be restored to life because God has promised that this child he will make a great nation through. God's purpose in demanding this sacrifice is to test Abraham's obedience to God. And Abraham had so far had a troubled track record in that department. The story of the journey of Abraham and his son, after they leave the servants to go up the mountain where God required the sacrifice to take place, is over three days, the same period of time that Jesus was dead after the crucifixion. In the same sense, Isaac was dead to Abraham from the beginning of this journey because he knew that he would have to kill his son at the end of it. Abraham reaches the place that God told him to go for the sacrifice. He and Isaac set up the sacrificial altar. Only one thing is missing, apparently, Isaac notices, the sacrifice. This prophetic discussion takes place between Isaac and Abraham in Genesis 22, 7-8. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father. And Abraham said, Here am I, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And this is a reference to the future when Jesus will be offered as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of mankind. And the story continues, so they went, both of them together. The sacrificial altar was prepared on Mount Moriah. Now Mount Moriah is the same mountain where over a thousand years later, Jesus will be crucified. The mountain then being known as Golgotha, also Calvary. So the prophetic sacrifice of the innocent Isaac was a forerunner of the sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of all mankind. Like the sacrifice that Christ was making, God took away from Abraham the necessity to sacrifice his own son. God provided a a ram to sacrifice at that place instead of Isaac. So now Jesus was handed over to the Pharisees to be executed under the escort and control of Roman soldiers. But Jesus was so weakened from the barbarous treatment that he'd received from the Roman soldiers that they had to have a person from Cyrene, modern-day Libya, carry Jesus' cross for him. Luke 23, 27-28 says, And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus turned unto them and said, Daughters of Israel, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And he's referring there to the coming destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem at the end of a bloody siege, which will take place in 38 years' time. 
The word excruciating is an English word derived from the practice of crucifixion. About the time of Christ, the Roman politician and philosopher Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting punishment. And some 30 years later, the philosopher Seneca said that anyone facing crucifixion would prefer to die before going to the cross. A medical study of the process in 2003 said that crucifixion was considered one of the most brutal and shameful ways of death. It was invented by the Assyrians, probably. The Persians adopted it and regularly used it until the 6th century BC. Later it was introduced to the eastern Mediterranean countries by Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. The Romans started using crucifixion in the 3rd century BC, but rarely was it used for Roman citizens. A person who was crucified took between six hours, an incredibly quick and lucky death, and four days on average. Some victims could last much longer. The victim was compulsorily scourged as Christ had been. The effect of the loss of blood and dehydration led to what is called hypovolemic shock pain, when the body has lost about 20% of its fluids. The most frequent cause of death from crucifixion was progressive asphyxiation, suffocation, caused by normal respiratory movement being obstructed. This eventually resulted incredibly in there being no oxygen in the arterial blood. Death was then precipitated by cardiac arrest from the lack of arterial oxygen, severe pain, body blows from the Roman guards and breaking of the leg bones to stop the person on the cross from being able to continue to breathe by pushing the whole weight of their body up on their feet which had a large nail driven through the bones into the cross. Sometimes a smoking fire was lit at the foot of the cross to asphyxiate the person being crucified. Interestingly, the way that the Jews had put a person to death was by stoning, still practiced in Islamic countries to this day. That changed in Judea after 7 AD when the then governor Coponius removed the legal power of the Jewish authorities to sentence anyone to death which was why the Jewish leaders had had to get Pilate to sentence Jesus to death, and then he was executed by crucifixion and not stoning. But for those things happening, and God sharing the information about what was going to happen in the future to Jesus in the Old Testament, nearly 600 years before Jesus was sentenced to death by crucifixion, something unthinkable to the people writing. Eyewitness accounts, they sound like eyewitness accounts of his crucifixion, were written in the Old Testament. God lives outside time, outside our universe that he created, and everything is laid out before him to share with those prophets, which he obviously did. About 700 years before Christ was crucified, Isaiah wrote about how Jesus was going to be killed in Isaiah 53, 5-8. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. An almost eyewitness account of the crucifixion of Jesus also appears in Psalm 22, written by King David in maybe 950 BC, over a thousand years before the crucifixion. I'll talk about that psalm too. On that day, there were two criminals being crucified. Jesus' cross was in the middle. One was placed to his right and one to his left. And Jesus was raised up on the cross at about midday. Jesus being crucified with common criminals fulfilled another of the prophecies of Isaiah made about 700 years before Jesus was crucified. He said in Isaiah 53:12, He hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, meaning he was crucified among criminals as if he was one of their kind. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's also spoken of in Psalm 22:16, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. The dogs and the wicked referring to the Roman soldiers and the priests and others who have put Jesus up on that cross. They pierced my hands and feet, as happened in crucifixion. But that didn't exist when King David wrote the psalm, when crucifixion was unheard of. The Jewish leadership came to taunt and mock Jesus at the moment they thought was their triumph. Serious doubts about their triumph emerged by nightfall, when Jesus had died and been taken down from the cross. But I'll tell you all about that in the next program. So the gloating people behind and supporting the execution of Christ came to where he rose above them on the cross, dying the excruciating death of crucifixion. I like Matthew's account of what happened in 27, 39 to 43. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Did the thieves hanging on the crosses beside Jesus know who he was and that he was the Son of God? Well, they probably knew about his story. 
They certainly heard the taunts that the Pharisees were making to Jesus. One of them joined in, as we're told in Luke 23, 39-43, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. One of the amazing things in the Christian faith is God's grace. Forgiveness of our sins, undeserved and unearned, by the simple and sincere acceptance of Christ as your Saviour. Grace, some clever person once said, is an acronym for God redeems at Christ's expense. We don't have to do good deeds to earn it, like other religions require, but believing in and accepting Christ brings that with it. And this salvation of this thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus, about to draw his last breath, is one of the most dramatic examples of grace being obtained even at one's last. Why? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believing in Jesus as the Messiah is the essential thing. There were seven cries by Jesus from the cross. The words to this robber was one of them. What were the others? Well, join me, Paul, for the next CYKIAE program as we continue to explore the last hours of Jesus' life before the crucifixion.